Just have a special announcement for my listeners. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for uh, listening. Started off as an experiment in August, but I've had about 2,000 listens of my podcast, and I'm so grateful. I have a special request uh, for my year-end episode 2020, which has been an incredibly interesting year. I plan to do an episode of listener feedback. So what I'd love for you to do is leave me a message, and the link is in the show note, about what you took away. What was one thing after listening to several episodes was the most impactful to you to help that helped you in some way, or was an insight you hadn't thought about before? If you can do that, then I will be sharing some of those insights. You can see that link in show notes. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with The Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. My last conversation with Anthony Ostler was in a little restaurant in London, Ontario, in January 1999. We were discussing an article on corporate strategy written by the late Professor C.K. Prahalad. Anthony was leading the recruiting efforts for the firm I was interviewing for a summer internship. It felt like a make or break conversation for me, so I was a little nervous. Anthony made it easier for me because he was genuine, caring, and curious. I reconnected with him 21 years later, and you get to hear that conversation. He is now the Senior VP and Head of Stakeholder Engagement and Marketing at State Street, a global financial company that services the investment industry. Since high school, Anthony has been dedicated to being the best mentor he could be. In this conversation, we get the inside track on the mind of a mentor. Hey, Anthony, how are you? I'm doing well. Are you, Shaquille? Really, really well. Anthony, thanks for making the time. It's really great to be reconnected with you after so many years. I, I wanted to share um, a recollection of kind of my first memories of you. I was at uh, business school at Ivy, and I had decided I wanted a career in management consulting. That's the main reason I came back to business school. And I remember we were at, um, I guess, a bit of a recruiting dinner. Right. Uh, you were the... Uh, team captain for recruiting for the consulting firm you worked at, now called Carney. At the time, it was A.T. Carney. Yeah. And we were sitting and having dinner, and you were sitting across from me, and we ended up talking about something from the strategy class that I was taking, and we talked about an HBR article, and I was really, really feeling a good good connection. One of the great joys that I took in, in that role was getting to meet really interesting, keen dedicated, hardworking people that, you know, that were interested in the industry. Uh, it was really important for us at, at AT Kearney, mm -hmm. Kearney now, but, but at the time was to, to um, make sure that we found people that had a good fit. Uh, you know, being at a school like Ivy, we could assume that people had strong skills, mm -hmm. but having the right attitude and, and, and maintaining the great culture that was key. And um, you know, so it was great to meet you and hit it off. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things just an aside from that time, those were the days where uh, management consultants wore suits and mm -hmm. sometimes even three-piece suits. And I'll just tell you, 
you know, being a student, I was very excited about the day that, you know, I got to go wear suits to work and pick out the ties and do all that stuff. Um, but shortly after I started my summer position at, at Kearney, the world changed. <laughs> and yeah. All of a sudden we went to, to biz cash. It was kind of the internet boom at the time. Yeah, and so crazy. the world changed and we went all the way to business casual. I was a little disappointed about that. I don't know about how you felt. Everyone went business casual, but also everyone was 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 taking punts or you know betting and essentially on all those internet stocks that were you know if you bought the right one you could quadruple your money in days. Right. It was a it was a pretty heady time. Yeah. Kind of remind me of some of the internet stocks that took off earlier in 2020 this year. Yeah, that you know <laughs> it's just it's sort of like wow, 20 years later, it's like an instant replay. Did yeah. you, did you do you know anybody that actually made it big and it kind of set them up for the rest of their career in that time and they got in and got out at the right time? Not a lot. So most of us have just had normal, normal careers coming out of uh, yes. coming out of university, myself, yourself. Um, mm -hmm. I, so let me ask you, what are you doing now? Where are you now? What are you do? What are you doing? So I'm the head of stakeholder engagement at State Street, which is a, a financial services firm based out of Boston. It's global, um, 36 trillion in assets under custody administration. Um, there's a lot that we do, but it's a, it's a, essentially maybe a, a large fintech attached to a bank. Okay. And we, we look we look after pension, mutual fund, ETF assets from the point of view of the safe custody and the the measurement and accounting of them, and providing services to to large asset managers, pension funds, asset owners, other types of clients like that. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 a B2B business. I've been at State Street for just over six years. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I want to talk to you about today, I was looking forward to this conversation because, you know, from my initial um, uh, kind of reflections of my first time meeting you, I remember you as a person that like actually cared authentically and um, genuinely about kind of other people and you did invest a lot of time I, I even remember you took the time to teach a few of us new hires how to pack a suit in a in a suitcase so that you actually can just take on carry-on luggage but still have a couple of suits to wear so like you took the time to do those kinds of things I, I understand now that you're still actually playing a significant role um, helping to mentor and coach young people on career planning you've built a a set of materials and, and some intellectual capital around career planning, career mentorship. Um, how did that come about? Like, how did you fall into that place of being that person? It's a, it's a really good question. I think, you know, I was, um, my last three years of high school, I was at uh, boarding school. And um, one of the things that, one of the things that they did was they, they suggested that we spend time focusing on um, as, as older students, on making sure the younger students in the house that you're in, mm -hmm. um, you know, were essentially weren't on their own, mm -hmm. and and so you, not that you were assigned to people, but you were encouraged to coach, support, engage, sponsor uh, younger students. And the idea was the younger students would benefit from that. When they became more senior, they'd pass it along. So that was a bit of the mm -hmm. model. I obviously, it was a five-year um, school. I went there from grade ten through twelve, so I, mm -hmm. I wasn't there for the full five years. But um, I really enjoyed that. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it, that it taught me in me that the importance of uh, there's always someone you can help. And mm. it was really quite interesting to see and, and quite enjoyable and it became a bit of a virtuous thing. And so when I went on to university, I would help the, those, those fellows that, you know, say they were in grade eight when I was talking to them when I was grade 11 or whatever, mm -hmm. when they were approaching university, I'd be in touch with them and mentoring them. And then I finished university and went to work and, 
And then when I went to do my MBA, I was, you know, people would want to talk about how do you get an MBA program. And so it just yeah. sort of continued. A lot of that was connections to yeah. the school. And then I saw that on steroids in a consulting firm because the consulting firm is 100% about its people. Right. The training and the development. And, you know, you, you know, and then I just continued doing it. So I, I was mm. got actively involved with the Ivy Alumni Association. Now it's called the Ivy Alumni Network, mm-hmm. Royal Bank of Canada. Uh, I was investor relations, but I worked mm. closely with the CFO to launch their leadership development program. Mm-hmm. Um, HR was obviously a key part to that, but I actually designed it and helped oh. them implement it. Did all the recruiting of all the candidates, all the interviewing in the first rounds, and then in signing mentors and and doing the, going doing all the campus recruiting with the CFO and. So it was really interesting to develop and design that. A big part of your activity, your kind of side of the desk activity, really, um, right. in your career came from um, an experience, a guidance, a seed being planted in high school. Yeah. And have you, you, you drew on that, that reference pretty quickly when I asked you the question. Do you think mm-hmm. often about the lessons that you've drawn from experiences in your adolescence and teenage years? Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, there was... When I finished high school, before I started in my undergrad, um, uh, my summer job was painting houses. Hmm. And um, and so as a painter, you're assigned to a team, you get trained up, and there's a bunch of stuff happens. And there's a franchisee owner that has an area, and they sell business. And you, um, it's, wow. it's yeah. a piecework process. You're told, hey, you have 100 hours to paint this house. If it takes you 200 hours, you know, you, it costs you two, you're out $100 to pay. And what I discovered was the manager that I had, he didn't really fully leverage the systems and processes in College Pro. I thought, well, I can probably do this better. I spent a lot of time asking questions and stuff and got to learn the general management for the area. Yeah. And so they asked me, well, after your, you know, in your first summer year, between first year and second year university, would you want to do it? You know, I had learned how to not do something, having <laughs> worked for someone that wasn't leveraging right. the system. Right. And um, went through their training process as a manager and leveraged their systems and processes was able to um, do really well. I had 100,000 in sales for four months worth of work. My average job size was $2,000. This is back in the summer, if you can believe it, of 88. Yeah. And the, at the time, the average job size in Canada was 1,000. So as a huh. rookie manager, I was able to generate double the job size. And there were a number of different things that I learned about that. I'm not good at cold calling. Okay. And cold calling takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So what I, I but I, I knew a friend who was pretty good at that. And so I structured his cold call pay on any cold call lead, I'll give you say 25 bucks, but any cold call lead that I can, I close, I'll give you 50. And so he was incented to not just get a name and phone number, like, hi, do you want to quote, but to get details about the people and stuff. So that when I came in, one, it was a a warm introduction, but two, I had context and think about what, what was important to them and stuff. Yeah. And so leveraging, you know, him and giving him incentive to do better cold calling yeah. resulted in a really high hit rate and a higher large side. The thing I did is learn was the importance of, of the client feeling that the person who sold them the business delivered some of the business. Right, right. You know, so I, uh, you know, I would, I would always paint the front door. <laughs> me. I would, but the client, it's so visual to the client. Oh, hey, this guy front is door. doing our front door. Yeah. And I would, I booked the time and do it carefully and stuff, but you know, I'd, I'd do nothing else on the house. Yeah. But, you know, I was like, oh, wow, our front door looks great. We're happy. You know, the guy's done us the business. And, and then it also gives you an opportunity. Usually you do that towards the end of the, the deal. It's like, well, you know, you want to, any of your neighbors you think I should meet? It's like, oh, yeah, you've done good work in my neighbor's house. Your, your, your team are respectful. You know, I'll do it if you give me, you know, uh, 
uh, Craig and, and Chris. Sure, I'll do it if you Craig and Chris do it. So they Craig and Chris spent like a month painting the homes in that one corner. As a leader, um, you know, just rolling up your sleeves for part of the project sends such a powerful message and it has so many ripple effects to to creating kind of future business creating great examples and mentorship for your team you're in the game with them um that's a fantastic story that's fantastic. Yeah, the only other only other thing there is is the importance of bottlenecks or critical path you know like so things some of the things i would do is i'd be at the paint store first and have paint at my painters um, at, at their job sites before they got there. So, mm. cause if they're not enabled, you know, or maybe you need a certain ladder for a certain hard corner or whatever, Right. you know, Hey, who needs the ladder? I would have it there for them so they could actually do their work. Right. 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 Like, like if you're not, if, if you're not being enabled, so if people aren't thinking about critical craft or bottlenecks or right. keeping things moving, you're not, if people aren't working, you're not making money. Right. 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 And, and, and they're not, and they're frustrated too. Right. Because they're just sitting around waiting and that also yeah. has ripple effects. If 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 they feel like you're just letting them sit around and wait, means you're not concerned about uh, the value of their time. You're not concerned about the money. Um, sets right. all sorts of messages. And that's what I think leaders sometimes that applies to every day, right? Every day, every right? Everyday work is that you know they don't often think about the conscious and unconscious ways that trust is broken. Um, right. You don't realize that one action can send a message and that message can ripple into so many other messages right. because without communication, individuals kind of make up their own story of what, uh, what makes when you tick and right. Yeah. I need something at seven o'clock. I need something by seven o'clock tonight. So someone yeah. kills themselves, skips dinner with their family, delivers it by seven o'clock. Yeah. And then you get back to them three days later and be like, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'm yeah. not doing that for you again. Yeah, absolutely. So right. Many, so you know, and I think right. that's the best leaders realize that what are the things that are communicated, not by words, but by actions and decisions, I think is really, really important to remember. You know, my son actually is running a student works franchise. Okay. And oh, cool. uh, I just really loved watching him go through some of those experiences. But I think this will be at least one episode that he will listen to because <laughs> he's doing it again next year. And uh, there's some really cool lessons and insights here that, uh, that I'll share with him. You must be a, just a naturally uh, reflective person. I don't know whether you have a practice of kind of writing down your lessons or learnings or whether you just have a very good mind for remembering the things you've learned along the way. But, you know, 20 plus years of, of insights seem to be in your brain right now, easily right. referenceable. How does that happen? I think part of it is has been that process of continually sharing my insights and mentoring, working with people. Hmm. Like, I, I mean, I would say that any given time I'm, I'm mentoring and when I say mentoring, like spending at least a half an hour with people once a month, about a dozen people. Mm. And, and, um, and then there's sort of ongoing sort of sponsoring or, or mentoring of um, maybe another 10 or 15 people that are maybe we catch up every couple of months or a quarter. Mm. Mm. And, and probably by doing that. You've touched on something very interesting there that I had never thought of before is that, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, uh, deliberate, intentional reflection, you know, writing your journal, go for a walk you know, process questions. But I didn't actually realize that other way of reflecting is to teach others, share your knowledge, right. share your experiences. And although you're passing on your knowledge and experiences, you're seeing the other benefit, which is uh, processing those things in your own brain right. and organizing them in your brain so that you can draw on them 
a, a little later. That's really, you know, now that you say that, I think about, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, writing blogs and doing posts and doing all that with the desire and intention to share knowledge with other people. But now that you mentioned it, I realize that actually I'm getting tremendous benefit in capturing those thoughts, organizing them and, and processing my lessons learned from life and putting right. them down. So it's like everything else, right? You get so much more out than you put in when you're doing it um, in service. Definitely. And one of the things that I found that um, beyond working on the presentations and the mentoring sessions and the coaching or sponsoring sessions, what's interesting is I try and avoid telling people what to do. Mm. What I try and do, similar to the Ivy model, is give people a decision-making framework mm -hmm. and walk them through that. But a key mm -hmm. part is when people are presented with an opportunity or have a set of alternatives, one of the challenges they often have, I mean, obviously you try and work with them, helping fight, find, develop their criteria and rank their criteria, but let's say something scores equally, but on different dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard, well, I have A or B, what do I do? One of the things that I've found that, that my past experience and that past reflection that often plays in is helping them play out the scenarios of option A or B. Mm. And so if it goes well, this is what can happen. If it, is me, if it goes average, this is what could happen. If it doesn't work out, this is what could happen. Mm -hmm. and, and then doing the parallel to that with you know, option B. And, and then so we, we, all of a sudden we've, we've talked through six different scenarios out of two options. And we yeah. can compare them and how I can help them play out those scenarios as from my own career experience, either directly my experience or what I've witnessed uh, happening to other people's careers. Yeah. And then yeah. the other thing to think about is, is an option tree. So if hmm. you, if you take alternative A, what doors are you opening, what you're closing? Right. You're trying to think about how one expands skills and experience your options. Yeah. You know, that the risk of pursuing a certain route could be that you close out certain doors for yourself. Yeah. And you may not think about that. And that's also something that I've thought about because having moved around, moved countries and that kind of stuff, you know, I've made some decisions that close certain doors, sure. right? Like I didn't, right, I'm Canadian. I can't currently visit Canada easily. Yeah. Yeah. I would never have thought that that's an implication, but yeah. you know, in the, yeah. the future world with the pandemics, you know, that's something that people may not have thought about in the past. Yeah. Like if you, you know, you should, you know, being closer to family could be really important. So making sure that that's not a, an option you don't want to close would be an example of something that I've recently learned that I'll yeah. never forget. <laughs> right. What, right? A, what a powerful gift to give somebody at a, a young age to teach them this framework of working through scenarios and consequences um, and recognizing kind of what is they're losing, what they're gaining, uh, what their choices are. What a really, really great gift to give people. And I, it also, another part of that from my experience, just trying to couple that in a little bit, is that scenario planning is really great, but it also teaches you that no matter where you are, there are multiple options. So even if you right. go down a path where you feel like, oh, I'm not so happy about the choice I made because I came here and I should have done that, instead of focusing on what you should have done, you can now say, okay, well, what's available to me now? And right. there may be some options where you can go back to circle back to do something that you Correct. wanted to do in the past. So right, and that's especially important that scenario analysis in the option tree because, yeah. you know, maybe option B isn't as appealing up front, but at least option B doesn't B doesn't close certain doors, yeah. or it actually may create doors or openings. Like if I think about, so I mean, constantly analyzing uh, what you're giving up and what you're gaining. I, I, you know, I think that's such a productive way because so oftentimes people will make decisions and they'll live with regret for the path they didn't take. But taking the time to say, okay, well, yeah. I lost some things because I didn't do that, but what did I gain because I did? 
and right. um, is also very empowering and very very helpful to spend some time thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much right. so. So I'd yeah. love because because you've spent you know so many years yeah. kind of making note of lessons learned. Uh, if you could share with our listeners a little bit, um, maybe, maybe I'll start with this question: What have you seen? Uh, people that have had very fulfilling, satisfying careers do differently than those that you've seen struggle a little bit? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. I think that um, the people that I've seen that have, have had really interesting careers have, have focused more on opportunities for growth, make sure that they're in a role where they're, they are continually being challenged and being, learning new things. So even though they may specialize, they have an opportunity for intellectual growth um, and learning of new things. They've been, you know, curious. So they, you know, that if you think about that personal growth element, they've, they've, they've tied that together and um, you know, they've been engaged with people. They, they, they don't to tend to just be off in a corner. So they're working and and being collaborative and and seeing things through and they've been determined. And so Mm. if things aren't, you know, if if things have been tough a bit, they don't give up. Determination can often, um, release breakthroughs. So I mean, those are some of the things that, yeah. you know, what, what I've, what I've observed. It's curiosity, always learning, um, you know, being engaged with people um, and being focused and determined and not giving up with obstacles. And in fact, using obstacles to become stronger and there's greater satisfaction when you actually struggle a little bit. Yeah. So how, like, are there ways, are there specific ways that you have coached people to start thinking about their career planning? Um, What's a, what's a good starting point for somebody, especially now where there's so much uncertainty about the future for a lot of young people, people are mm-hmm. pivoting and shifting. Is there a, a way you go about thinking about the future and, and where somebody goes from a position they are right now? Yeah, there's a, a couple of different elements. And, and part of it is, um, is trying to get people to think a bit, a bit of a vision, mm-hmm. which may sound like, like a good corporation or a team has a vision and a mm-hmm. purpose, mm-hmm. you know, so trying to think about longer term. It's more about what are the things that you think would be important to have, mm-hmm. not about titles or pay. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about, okay, so if I want to have, if I, that's my vision, what are, the, what are the sort of skills and competencies that I would need to, to, to be able to get to that spot? What experience and knowledge do I think I would need to have? What strengths and weaknesses do I currently have relative to those? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, and then out of that, what are the overall development elements that I need to, to be focusing on? And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, so a key part of that is then thinking about one, one dimension of that is experience and knowledge and the other is skills and competencies. If yeah. you're starting your career, you may have some skills and competencies because let's say you've completed university yeah, and you had some summer jobs and whatever. So you have a little bit of experience, but not a lot of, a lot of experience and skills and topics, but, but there's a job that you could picture yourself. Today. Relative to that, you need to think about what are the strengths that I bring to the table? Some of those strengths, when you, let's say your first job or you're, you're in a job and you're, some of those strengths you will, you will have displayed at either in your current role or at your employer. So I would just call those displayed strengths, but there's other strengths because not every job uses all your strengths. Mm-hmm. There's other strengths that you have, but you haven't displayed, which I would call innate strengths. Hmm. So that, you know, the combination of innate strengths and display strengths cover a good chunk of, of that desired landscape, but there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch, there's a gap. Mm-hmm. There's a gap of relative to what you, relative to the desired, what you want to be able to do. And mm-hmm. so we have to think of the, how do you display more? So your current employer or employers that are looking about you will go, okay, actually this person has the things that we're looking for. 
and how do you add things? And so you need to be continually thinking about what skills and competencies that are gaps that I need to be acquiring. So am mm-hmm. I doing night school or the CFA or do I have to take time out and go do my MBA? Mm-hmm. So that's a skills and competencies sort of acquisition or do I have to get put on special projects or different roles in the organization to get exposed to those things? And then there's experience and knowledge. So with time, as I'm progressing, let's say a job needs 10 years of experience before someone will consider you, you know, making sure that you're getting the right skills and uh, competencies, but developing the experience and knowledge that's required for people to think, okay, this person's ready to be in this role. Mm-hmm. Through time, what you're doing is expanding. So, so what, what I'm what I'm interpreting there, and I just want to, I want to just confirm back to, to make sure I, yeah. I, I, I've gotten it. So a couple of things you're saying, the first thing you're saying is don't necessarily, um, start planning what your next move is, start thinking about where you wanna be in some future state. Um, and that might be blurry, but just imagine possible right. roles in the next five or 10 years and mm-hmm. then work backwards to say, okay, if that's the goal, let me look at the experience and knowledge I have now. And let me look right. at the skills and competencies I have now. What are obvious strengths I have um, from what I've learned that I get to right. apply in my work and what are strengths that perhaps um, I have, I've cultivated over my life, but I don't get to use very often, put those two together and then say, okay, what's the difference between what I have, strengths, skills, competencies, experience, and right. what I need to get the job. And that's when you start saying, what are the projects? What are the assignments? What are the roles I should take right. to kind of build my build my strengths up to get to the place of, uh, of doing that. A lot of jobs today, um, because of the span the layer model or whatever, a lot, especially entry level jobs are what are called individual contributor roles. Yeah. So you come out, you're not managing a team or even yeah. in a player coach mode where you have one or two people working for you often. It's, you could be in, a, in two or three roles in a row where you have no one reporting to you. Now you're right. doing a lot of collaborating and working with people globally and all you yeah. money, a million different things. But so how do you display leadership skills and if leadership skills are required um, to be able to do that end role, like one example would be is doing volunteer work. Right. And, you know, chairing a committee or leading a team in a volunteer basis. So you can demonstrate in parallel. So that's a way of displaying strengths and building strengths and adding skills and saying, hey, you know, although you don't see me, I don't have a chance to prove to you I'm a leader. You know, look what I'm doing in the community. And this is a reflection of my leadership skills. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and so, you know, that, that helps that the key thing, though, is not just doing any volunteer thing. Like I, I highly recommend people they do volunteer stuff that it matches to their passion. Right. 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 It has to be has to fit with your values and your passion. Otherwise, you won't give it what it what it, it's required and it won't get the energy. You won't have the curiosity and the engagement and the determination to have the impact. You know, I found people that want to do something, maybe their employer says, you should volunteer. I'm not going to promote you unless you do more in the community. Right. And, okay, what should I do? And this is like, you know, my employer wants me to do this. What should I do? Yeah. Well, that's not, that doesn't really generally. It's not the right spirit. Absolutely. No, I mean, ultimately you become a checkbook. Well, um, it's interesting because you're basically then suggesting that you don't do those things, those volunteer efforts and building those skills or uh, going down that path for the sake of checking boxes. You don't do it for the sake of perception. You do it because you genuinely want to learn and grow and experience and broaden your horizons. And it's almost like the perception is an outcome and result of that. It may have been the initial reason, but you actually do it for different reasons. You do it for yourself and your growth. Right. Hmm. So it's really important, you know, when the limited time we have and the demands we have in our lives that we 
that we attach ourselves to that fit with our vision our purpose mm-hmm. and our passion mm-hmm. because it's it otherwise it becomes mercenary now the reality is we have to pay the bills we got mortgages right. rent whatever like so sometimes things have to be maybe maybe you have a tough boss you don't like working with sometimes you just have to live with it and it's mm-hmm. but it's not forever mm-hmm. but but the like given that limited amount of time um, you want to get the most out of it. And so if it aligns with what you, what, what's important to you, what will happen is it'll become a virtuous experience. Mm-hmm. So maybe you start on the committee, but mm-hmm. because you're curious and you're keen and you're always reliable and you deliver, all of a sudden you become the leader of the committee. Mm-hmm. And because and then when you're the leader of the committee, you change how things are done. And all of a sudden you transform what's being done on behalf of that organization mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. But, yeah. And, and you're able to attract other volunteers that are, are similarly passionate and, and so you create a, um, a even stronger and more virtuous cycle versus just a bunch of people checking the box, Love right? It. So that, like, I think that the, the matching to passion is really important. It's, it's but a then, constant, what, but yeah, then, go ahead, sorry. But then you're also developing the skills and the experience, but it feels more organic, Yeah. right? But, you yeah. know, trying to manage volunteers is, is, is like herding cats, <laughs> right? <know>. So, <laughs> right, so how do, you, how do you align and manage volunteers? Like it's, it's similar to being an individual contributor yeah. and trying to manage uh, colleagues all around the world to get something done. Yeah. So yeah. You know, that requires persuasion, people skills, um, alignment, um, learning how to ask people to engage, um, giving them context. There's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that you unpack and develop, mm-hmm. but it's hard to do if you don't if you don't understand the vision or have the passion aligned with. The organization you're 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 doing that volunteer work. Mm-hmm. What you know? What's uh, again an, an underlying thread of everything you've been talking about is, um, you know, self awareness and self reflection are such an important part of everything you're talking about. You know, what are the consequences of my actions? Um, what have I learned from this experience? Uh, what do I want to accomplish? And what specific things do I need to do to to get myself there? It's a lot of self-reflection, self-awareness. That's that's part of that, right? Yeah. Know? No, I mean, I, I I very much agree. I mean, I think it's yeah, and it, and sometimes it's it's happens when you're doing it, and sometimes it comes out of looking back on it, going, "Hey, I was you know I was surprised what I could do." Like, yeah, yeah. I raised one point three million dollars personally for a charity in Vancouver. Yeah, and um, it's something that I often share when I when when I like talk about career management because um, when I was joining the charity board yeah i mean i had a lot of passion for it it was an agency that had family services of greater vancouver they'd done great work with me they helped me do my reunion with my birth mother i'm adopted and it was such a great experience i wanted to pay it forward and volunteer for them and um but when i joined the board I said well i'm, I'm priming the table with finance skills strategy skills mm-hmm. i'm really engaged i'll help you to governance and finance stuff but don't ask me to raise money because like i've never raised money i'm not good at raising money i don't know i don't know how to ask people for money yeah. Um, and, you know, for the first couple of years I was on the board, I raised maybe $5,000, right? Yeah. Through my finance work, I discovered, oh, well, we need to, it would make sense for us to buy another building. We've got ca- enough cash for a down payment. Mm-hmm. So I convinced the board to allow me to go negotiate a mortgage, went found a building, bought the building, then said, okay, you guys, the rest of the board members, you go do a good capital campaign to help pay down the mortgage. We don't need right. it, but Right. You know, whatever we raise would be win, right? And yeah. I'll oversee getting getting the building renovated and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'm overseeing the renovation. And it's like, how's the capital campaign going? Oh, we've raised fifty thousand dollars. Like, what what's going on? <laughs> well, we just can't seem to ask people any money. And it's like, I said, well, you know, maybe I can help. Family services had a direct impact on my life. The vast right. majority of people that that 
would donate to family services or would volunteer for it would not have used its, its services because the vast majority of the services that they do are, you know, helping people that are victims of abuse, have addiction issues, yeah. helping new immigrants uh, integrate into new country, like learning financial services skills or, you know, dealing with a lot of, a lot of real blocking and tackling social services stuff. Yeah. If you if you're a young professional or a wealthy family member, you may not need those things. Right. But because they'd done my union with my birth mother, I could talk about that. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd I'd go and meet with wealthy people and say, hey, you know, and let me tell you a little about family services and how I personally benefited from it. Right. And and they're like, they could like, where do I sign? Wow. Yeah. Right. Like that that 1.3 million came from 25 people. Wow. So it wasn't you know, and I maybe did, I maybe met with 30. Like mm. the hit rate was pretty high, high. Um, but it kind of one of the, it's one of those things. So if you if you reverse earlier, I think with the college pro example, yeah, um, these introductions, I was I was introduced to people. I went to one person I knew really well. He made a commitment, and then he gave me some names, and then and so it was, right. a lot of these things <laughs> were painting the right. front door. <laughs> you know, Joe said I should talk to you, whatever, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, and then it just, and then, and telling them about my personal experience and it was like, okay. And so it was actually pretty amazing. But what I realized was, is you, you limit yourself. Often people don't know what they're capable of. Right. So I'm being um, brought on the board and I'm saying, don't ask me to raise money. Hmm. And, um, and here I, all of a sudden I can raise, I can raise over a million dollars. Right. In a relatively short order. And when I started on the finance committee, I was just trying to understand the financial statements. But by asking questions, you know, you get this snowball and you, you un unpack and unlock so much that if you, you know, if you have blinders on, you don't necessarily know what your, your potential or capable ca capabilities right. are. Right. Um, and, goes, and your impact can be comes back to that curiosity and, and always seeking to learn, to grow, and the big lesson I took from the last thing you just said right now was um, don't limit yourself by saying no. Don't limit yourself by saying you don't think you can do something. You know, that's the right. growth mindset philosophy, right? Say, you know, I, I really, it's the power of yet. I don't know if you've heard that term, the power of yet. Don't say you can't do something. Say you can't do something yet. <laughs> so right. I can't fundraise. Well, I can't fundraise yet. But there's things right. you can do to actually put yourself in a position to be able to do it. And that's the growth mindset. Um, I wanted to wrap up the conversation, yeah. um, but I wanted to ask you if you have time uh, yeah. for, a, a, I think, a big question, because you talk a lot about you know, long-term planning and work backwards to what you need to do to get to that end goal. Mm -hmm. Given that the future is so uncertain, Right. Given that, you know, the jobs of today may not be the jobs of tomorrow um, and right. there may be new jobs tomorrow. How would you advise kind of young people, people early in their career today to start thinking about what the what's possible in the future? That's a really good question. You know, I think that it, you know, visualizing what's exactly going to be there is very hard. Right. But I'll give you a good example because I got it. I was mentoring someone that was an Ivy alum and she said, mm -hmm. my brother's doing his HBA at Ivy. Mm -hmm. um, and he's all he had started at Ivy doing engineering but my parents want him to graduate just an HBA. But if he does another extra year, he could have a dual engineering and HBA degree. Right. Would you mind talking to him about it? And so this was a couple summers ago. I did the A or B. You have two options and walked him through the scenarios. And I mm -hmm. said, you can graduate 
which would have been, he would have been graduating in the spring of this year mm-hmm. with an HBA, <laughs> or you could do one more year and, and in engineering and get your dual engineering and HBA degree, then you're going to have a lot more options available for you. Mm-hmm. And if you fast forward and you think about your career, your career is, is going to be 40 to 50 years. So we mm-hmm. don't know what your career is going to involve. But if we picture a world where software and technology and all these different things are really important, engineering is pretty important. Mm-hmm. We also have to think about a career where um, business and other elements are really important. An HBA, you know, a great thing about the Ivy undergrad program is it gives you the same skills as the MBA. You may not have yeah. the experience, but you get the same skills. Yeah. You get that decision-making framework and the ability to handle complexity and that kind of stuff. So you marry those two together you have a really good set of options available for yourself. Mm. We don't know how the world's going to play, but it's likely going to work out better. Anyway, mm. so he sent me a note through LinkedIn um, about two weeks ago. And he said, you know, I just want to let you know, I got a permanent job offer for when I graduate in May of 2021. It's marrying up both my engineering HBA skills. You may have heard me or read, read me talk about this in the past, but I really do believe that a great visual for how we can live in this world is to be that drop in the water that creates ripples and impacts people. And what you've described to me today is, I don't know what the numbers are, Anthony, but if you just start even with being in high school and the people you helped in high school and then look at me and, and helping me in the start of my career is that, you know, you've probably impacted uh, directly hundreds, if not thousands of people, let's say a thousand, uh, each of those people, if they've impacted another, you know, somewhere between a hundred and a thousand people, that's a really significant impact. And um, I just want to say, you know, I know you're not doing it for that purpose. You're doing it for self-fulfillment, but um, that's how the world's going to move forward is if we all kind of take some time to help each other and um, help each other impact other people. Thank you for being that person, Anthony. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you, Shaquille. Likewise, I'm really glad we've got in touch. I really appreciate you reaching out. So there's lots to summarize here. So let me get right to it. First of all, there is much you can learn from watching other people's mistakes and struggles if you do so from a learning mindset and not a judging mindset. As he described as he learned from the manager when he was painting as a high school student. He also talked about how mentoring is actually a method of reflection. That was something that I had never thought about before, is in addition to journaling and walking in the woods, you can actually mentor and coach others as a way of reflecting on your own lessons and experiences in life. In mentoring, it was very important for Anthony not to tell people what to do, but to help them map out scenarios, options, and Consider the consequences of the various options. That was a really cool exercise he walked us through and a pretty incredible framework to offer to um, those young people that uh, need mentoring today. He talked about those people that he has mentored that have been successful in their career. He's seen some common traits. First is they seek growth and challenge in the work they do. They operate from a curious mindset. They make sure they're engaged with people and they're determined, they don't give up. He offered advice for career planners. He said, don't think about the next step in your career. Look forward and imagine where you wanna be in five or 10 years. 
not from a specific title or role perspective or salary, but rather, what do you want to be doing? And then work backwards to what skills, competencies, um, and capabilities you need to develop to get there and seek your next step based on that. So you're operating based on a plan. He talked about how volunteering was an incredible way to develop skills and experiences that you don't get to develop on the job. So you really don't have an excuse to be able to say, I don't have the skills for that job because you can go and volunteer. But he warned, when you volunteer, make sure you're not just checking the box. Actually seek a volunteer opportunity that you're passionate about because that passion will help you do a better job. And the better job you do, the more you will learn and the more you will demonstrate your uh, capabilities. And the last big thing I took away was not to limit yourself, to try new things, to push outside your comfort zone. You'll be surprised what you can accomplish. I hope you enjoyed that and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share it. I want to say thank you to one of my favorite bands, Late Night Conversations, for sharing their song Chaos with me and letting me use it in this episode. You can learn more about them on Instagram at LNC Connected. And here's more of their song Chaos to take you out.